Welcome back to episode 101 of Herpological. Well, it's not back to 101. You haven't listened to this episode yet, presumably, but maybe you have. Either way, it's episode 101 of Herpological Highlights, and um, rather appropriately, we have an episode about learning. Uh, I'm Ben Marshall, and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. Um, yeah, so learning, right? 101. I don't know where the the, the association between 101 and uh, like basic learning stuff comes from. That is really a good point. I didn't really know what you meant when you said appropriately this is about learning. I was like, <laughs> how is that appropriate? But yeah, Monitor Lizards 101 would be a good name for the episode, actually. I, f- I think you've, I think there we go. Uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah, we're doing an happened. episode about learning. And, now, uh, using, using the powers of Google and uh, laziness, um, according, to <laughs> according to the first thing that comes up, Oxford Dictionary in the late 20s. Uh, 101, introductory course number in a 1929 University of Buffalo course catalogue. <laughs> wow. <laughs> this is why people, of Buffalo. This is why people come to this podcast, to find out stuff like that. Without herpetological highlights, you could go your whole life just accepting that 101 was the name of introductory courses. But you'd never have realised that it stemmed from the University of Buffalo. Yeah, so. I mean, I'm getting that straight from the wonderfully reliable source of Wikipedia. And that is all I'm going to say on the topic. Monitor lizards. We love them. Yeah. So uh, it was your idea to do an episode on monitor lizards. You uh, came with a couple of cool papers and... Uh, and then you replaced one of them. Yes, because it wasn't as cool as you thought it was. Ben. It was actually <laughs> extremely one-dimensional. And honestly, I found it trying. So we had to change. But yeah, we've ended up with... Uh, well, let's get stuck into the first one. The first one's by Petit, Ward, Fear and Shine, 2021. Invasion of cane toads, Renella marina, affects the problem-solving performance of vulnerable predators, monitor lizards, Varanospherius, published in Behavioral Ecology and Sociobiology. And um, people may remember the cane toad. Obviously, we've talked about it a lot of times on the podcast. But in our last episode, episode 100, if you haven't listened to that yet, we had a bit of a quiz. And um, yeah, Ben correctly identified the cane toad, which I was not shocked by, but I was glad you did. Yeah, and weirdly, this isn't even the paper that I, I picked. This this one with cane toads in. No, this was... No, you didn't, which is, um, you know, I should commend you for that. You managed to not pick an episode that contained toads, but it's come back to toads. And I mean, yeah, cane toads, yeah, they're a, they're a toxic toad. They're big. Um, they're an invasive species in Australia. They're originally from South and Central America. And Australia introduced them to try and deal with agricultural pests. That was a terrible idea. And it didn't um, even work. Like this, this work. is the thing. It was a, it was a, it was a bad idea to be introducing species, and it didn't even do the thing that you wanted it to do in the end. No, it really is a good lesson though for human humanity in general that biological. Con- I mean, we've had this conversation, but biological controls are fraught with danger. Um, not, not. I guess this was like the classic textbook terrible example, but yeah, these cane toads, they've exploded in population, and now because they're poisonous, Australian wildlife is eating them, and when they do, they get poisoned. Many times they die. And in this paper, we're talking about the lace monitor or the tree goanna, because Australians refer to monitor lizards as goannas. Um, Scientific name is Varanus varius. This is a large lizard, grows up to two meters long, weighs up to 14 kilograms, which is about the same as a Jack Russell terrier. And they're found in Eastern and... that's That's a tubby Jack Russell terrier, that is. 14 kilos? Yeah, 
I know, yeah, I thought that. It's sort of the upper bound for a male Jack Russell Terrier. But there was, I had a look at this sort of list of dog breeds to try and decide which one to sort of relate this to. And all the other ones were sort of dog breeds I'd never heard of. And I thought, Jack Russell Terrier, that's kind of, you know, everyone knows a Jack Russell. Okay, so the issue, I'm I'm going off on one here. Uh, The issue with 14 kilo Jack Russell is the Jack Russell I'm most familiar with in my life weighs about five kilos. Are you sure? Are you uh, sure it doesn't I'm weigh relatively more? certain, yeah. Because we you use could... her as a metric of measurement quite frequently. Quite frequently. <laughs> no, but you she, don't. Is, she is a small Jack Russell as they go. Well, then exactly. So she's the lower bound. She's the lower she's bound. She's definitely lower bound. But 14 Look, kilos. <laughs> you of all people, Triple Ben, should know that a sample size of one is not good in terms of, you know... Working out this sort of That's mean population, absolutely. the mean weight of a population. Yeah, uh, yeah. no, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. Um, I'm just Your Jack ha- Russell's a tiny little freak. <laughs> but 14 kilos, three times yeah. the weight. 14 kilos is a whopping Jack Russell, I'll, I will admit that now. Yeah. Yeah, I um, mean, what's your Jack Russell called? Little, uh, she's called Sprite. Ah, little Sprite. Yeah. It's been a while since she's appeared on the podcast, scuttling about. Right. She doesn't live with you now, though, does she? No. So she's not there all the time. No, she's not barking in the background. Not because you've abandoned your pet dog. We should make that clear. She's your parents' <laughs> pet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, there's two color forms of the lace monitor. The main form is this kind of dark gray to dull bluish back color, black color, with numerous scattered cream colored spots. Very pretty. But there's also this bells phase, which is quite famous. If you were to Google the lace monitor, you'd probably see pictures of the bells phase popping up which is really striking black with yellow bands on it and um it's just a geographical thing i think ones in the southwest of the populations are tend to be bells phase there's like an area where bells phase are more prevalent um and these are lizards that are capable of climbing very well they live in forests they're generalist predators they're very high up in the food chain and yeah they live in an area which has been invaded by toxic cane toads or at least their range is in the process of being evaded, invaded Right, critical point. Not all of them are dealing with cane toads. Some of them are, because that's the whole the setup for this paper. Is you've got they're looking at different areas of these model lizards. Some that have experienced cane toads for a long time, like uh, what's their their highest, like eighty years something. Cane toads have been hanging around, yeah, causing trouble. And then the lowest, obviously, the cane toads haven't gotten there, so a low of zero. Um, and you've got this wide range of sites covering this this distribution this this range of uh time since ca- initial cane toad invasion or initial uh cane toad exposure i suppose that's right and uh if lace monitors eat the toxic cane toads they die so like most things yeah and i mean you know, it's well, not their most fault things in these, australia uh, anyway yeah these are lizards which have evolved in the absence of toxic toads as far as they were concerned evolutionarily if they eat a nice little frog or a toad it's just a delicious meal all of a sudden, you get this invasion of toxic cane toads, and now they're in a situation where if they eat the cane toads, they can die. So, monitor lizards, you know, they're no fools, right? There's no flies on monitor lizards. They're generally perceived to be quite clever, but they also have different personalities and different kind of levels of intelligence with within and between individuals. Just like and anything. So, just like anything, yeah. And as you mentioned, we've got this situation where there's loads of populations, 17 different populations of lace monitors and some of them have been exposed to toads for a while some of them are just now getting exposed to toads and what they wanted to do was to see if there was a difference 
among these populations in how they responded to a challenge. And the challenge was, can you get these delicious chicken necks out of this tube, which has a kind of sliding door? Yeah, um, the tube, I, I've, I've never seen this, this puzzle set up for an animal, animal pro- problem solving thing before, so I found this quite intriguing. But So you've essentially got, it, it's a big piece of PVC pipe, maybe, how, I don't know how wide it is, decently wide. <laughs> I, I can't see where the numbers are. <laughs> doesn't matter, doesn't matter. Um, with this grid-by-grid uh, grid wire, so you can the monitor lizard can see in, it can see the uh, tasty treat inside, and it can smell the tasty treat because of, you know it's just a mesh mesh bit of uh, uh, wiring there. And all the monitor lizard has to do to get the treats is rotate this section of wire, and there's a gap in it, so it doesn't go all the way around the tube. So if you rotate the whole thing round, there'll be an opportunity to get its head in and get the uh, get the chicken necks from inside. But it's, it's a rotational uh, sort of job needs to be done before it can do that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So it's sort of a weird twisty kind of, yeah, the door slides around the tube, right. doesn't it? It's yeah. like a mesh door that slides around the tube. And once they've opened it, they can get to those delicious, delicious chicken necks. Um, which is another thing I've not seen in one of these papers before, chicken necks used as bait. I mean, I guess it's as good as anything else. They like chicken. Hey, I mean, a lot of these monster lizards seem pretty food motivated and seem pretty keen to get the chicken necks. So I ain't going to question that choice. No. And so, yeah, they basically deployed these challenges and every time they put a pipe out, they would put a camera trap by it. And then they were looking to see, basically, if there was a difference between the different populations of monitor lizards with or without cane toads or with different lengths of time with cane toads and see if they behaved differently when they were faced with this challenge. And um, they had 30 wild monitor lizards engaged with the experiment, which is pretty awesome um, to persuade that many wild animals to do your study without you know, saving yourself the effort of keeping them in a lab and, you know, you get to study a wild animal and how it behaves, which is always cool. And so, yeah, they did see a difference. There was actually a decline in the seeming problem-solving ability of monitor lizards. So the relationship was the longer that cane toads had been in an area, um, the less good the monitor lizards seemed to be at solving the problem, at getting the... um, chicken necks out of this pipe but why so on the face of it you'd think okay well if there's less monitor lizards going up to the pipe working out how to open the door in cane toad areas that just means that the monitor lizards have been made stupider by the arrival of cane toads (laughs) that's the sort of suggestion i mean because the other bit they they recorded was how long it took to solve the puzzle if it if they did succeed and that followed the same pattern with the ones that have been exposed to cane toads for longer taking longer to solve the puzzle yeah so that that does seem like a relatively open and shut case and i was quite surprised reading the discussion that wasn't really the route they went down to me it just seemed like straight up where the cane toads have come the monitor lizards have become dumber because the clever ones have all been killed by eating cane toads however (laughs) you've got to admit what you just said sounds pretty counterintuitive doesn't it (laughs) it does yeah it does because it's like okay you've introduced a new problem for these lizards to solve and they've all become stupider as a result of surviving having solved it right mm, that it's not really a very it's not really a very acceptable uh, outcome. It doesn't make sense to me. I think it's not logical. Not very parsimonious. So it's not. And you know what they say about parsimony, Ben? Um, 
It's the most parsimonious that's usually right. Oh. <laughs> that's what they say. <laughs> mate, that, that wonderfully succinct saying. <laughs> that's phylogenetics 101, mate. <laughs> that's most of uh, science 101. Yeah. And so what they suggest is that actually, rather than having just got straight up stupider, the monitor lizards which have survived, because bear in mind, if you eat a toxic toad, it's game over. You get one shot and you're dead. So what they think is that actually when the toxic toads have arrived, the most bold monitor lizards have just rocked up and straight away eaten a toad and they've died as a result. So the cane toads have selected against these like bold, brazen monitor lizards. And so what you're left with is the kind of more cautious, maybe you could say. Yep. Uh, yep. A little bit less, less risk, uh, risk, maybe more risk averse. Yeah, more neo neophobic, afraid neo- of new uh, novel things. Yeah, yeah. Neophobic. So lizards which are a little bit more cautious, a little bit less prone to taking risks, you know, a little bit more shy maybe, have been selected for and the bold ones have all been exterminated, which is kind of an interesting dynamic to have created in your apex predator. You've gone from having a bold apex predator to having a kind of sheepish scared cowardly apex predator if you will and i think that the thing is we have no idea right you always think one of the points they make in this paper is when you measure the effect of an invasive species in terms of its negative consequences you try and look for population declines right it's like okay well the cane toad came in and now oh there's less lace monitors therefore that's a negative impact but in these areas and and they haven't published this data but they mention it they think that the populations of monitors are more or less the same now i mean there was probably an initial crash but they've come back up um and they they suggest that that's because uh, the effects aren't actually measured in terms of the population numbers mm-hmm. they're measured in terms of the behavior of the animals that are in those populations and that poses a really interesting question if you're living in an area where your apex predator suddenly massively on a population scale changes its personality, what does that mean for you as a prey item? Is it going to change? Because obviously all we're seeing is a tiny fraction, a tiny cross section of their behavioral change. They're like less willing to engage with and they're taking longer to engage with a challenge. Well, a cha- a very specific challenge though, isn't it? A very weird PVC pipe in a wild exactly. environment sort of challenge. Like, it, it's... I love that it's done in wild environment for this point, but they also bring up, hey, you've got all these different variables flying around and all these different sort of confounding things which are quite hard to control for in the wild. That doesn't undermine anything as at all. If anything, I'd say having it in the wild does the opposite, but it's... Yeah, you you, you don't want to overgeneralise. No, yeah. But there, it, it's still... What remains is this question, okay, so are they going to be eating different things? Are they going to be hunting mm-hmm. in different ways? Is it going to have... A cascading effect on the rest of the food web and to be honest we don't know the answer to that question that's kind of a a very big one that would be interesting to try and work out a way to unpick yeah i think the whole cane toad introduction thing is super intriguing because it is this you know it's not a very pleasant experiment going on but it is still going on and is dynamically changing before us we um it's oh yeah who knows and how do you even ID some of these cascading effects? It's it's so difficult. Yeah. Like, they've done a really good job at trying to unpick uh, like problem-solving ability here, but there's still so much more going on, isn't there? Like it, This is a one very specific puzzle. Yeah. I mean, it would be cool to see... I guess you could do a diet study of... Like, if you've got museum specimens of monitors from these areas and then compare that to the gut contents of today, it could well be that maybe they're just not eating frogs and toads anymore. You just don't know. Yeah, it could, could be that. Could be they're shifting their movement. Could be they're, 
you know, ship, their their body sizes are changing. You know, it just just adds up and adds up and adds up. Although I think they did double check body size here. Ba 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 ba. Among the 16 successful lizards, time taken to complete the puzzle differed significantly with time since toad invasion, but was not affected by body size, uh, nor by the interaction between number of years since toads invaded and body size. So, so it's not a case that it's just smaller ones doing better or worse. It's actually across. Larger lizards did have higher success rates, um, but not on the latency. What? It's getting a bit confusing. Lar- larger <laughs> lizards were better at solving the puzzle. Yeah. But they weren't quicker at solving the puzzle. Right. You get me? Yeah. So they have, you know, they were good at doing it, but bigger didn't lend to faster, just higher success rates. Yeah, I don't know. I think that bigger thing's a bit confusing really. Does it does it matter? Um I mean it does if it to to counter the point of like, okay, are you having smaller or larger monitor lizards surviving? Mm. Um you know, it opens the doors for like lots of uh-huh. weird interactions with okay. Were, uh, yeah, they're yeah. gape limited predators, yeah? And cane yeah. toads are larger. Is there going to be a skew between, uh, like, let's, so you've got bigger monitor lizards being better at problem solving, but also potentially more likely to be able to take a large cane toad, which is going to give them a large dose of toxin that will knock them out immediately. They didn't find any sort of interaction, but yeah. you do have that in the back of your mind of, like, how do the diets change within a population making them less or more vulnerable to an invasive toad. Because you were talking, yeah. I mean, you're talking about how these cascading effects, effects occur. They're not going to happen yeah. to every single monitor lizard uniformly either. It's you, very true, yeah. And we've had we've had papers in the past where animals have sort of shifted to nocturnality as a means of yeah. reducing competition and stuff like that. So exactly. it's not, you know, these big changes can occur. I see, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's, totally, a, yeah, it's totally a thing. So yeah, um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, this is one of those papers that kind of, creates a lot more questions than it answers um but oh, yeah nevertheless yeah we do now know that there's been a change you know the monitor lizards are less sort of curious less bold it would seem right um although yeah that it's, it's always hard to say like an animals i always find it kind of funny i mean i just did it but re- sort of describing as an, an animal as shy is kind of a weird one it's like a well, it's, very human emotion yeah you know it 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 it's uh helps you think about it though doesn't it yeah but then you throw in the alternative if maybe it's just less motivated to participate in some weird novel puzzle solving thing so Mm. it's 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 difficult to pick apart but like you say super super interesting because it primes a whole bunch of oh you just want to know more don't you you want you know yeah (laughs) like instantly it's so it's so so grabbing it is. And so, uh, right. Basically, when we were, when I was uh, researching this paper, I did a Google search on the distribution of uh, some monitor lizard, right? And um, <laughs> one of the, for some unknown reason, the first hit that I got on Google was this website, which was describing how to remove monitor lizards from your home. Like what to do if you've got a problem with monitor lizards invading your house, basically. That seems pretty standard, right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I clicked on the article and it immediately became clear. It wasn't actually about monitor lizards. It wasn't clear exactly what um, lizards they were talking about. I think this is an article which is meant for people in like 
countries where there's a lot of geckos coming in the house mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but the photographs they used to describe the different species were hilarious like one of them was a chameleon <laughs> <laughs> oh yes the uh, lesser uh, varanus chameleonsis yeah um but yeah do you want to hear some of the ways in which they suggested you can avoid lizards in the house i would love to hear these uh Alleged ways to prevent lizards coming into your house. Alleged key term. So apparently eggshells is a good one. What Eggshells? And this is their reasoning, yeah? Eggshells contain sulfur that causes a burning sensation to the lizard's abdomen. (laughs) (laughs) What? Yeah, and then it says, in addition, the smell of sulfur in eggshells is reminiscent of a bird's beak, the lizard's natural predator. Why would birds beak smell of sulfur? (laughs) <laughs> this discourages lizards from entering an area with eggshells. Also, and it, do you want to live in a house that stinks of sulphur? Yeah, but how much do eggshells even stink? Like, that's ridiculous. Well, rotten, rotten eggs can get pretty potent, and that's, oh, that's see, when they yeah. smell sulfury. Yeah, I mean, it's a stupid thing. It's it was like, make your house stink of sulphur, and that will stop lizards and also your friends and family from visiting. <laughs> <laughs> it's a terrible idea. And the idea that <laughs> you can rub eggshells on a lizard's tummy and it'll feel a bit <laughs> sore is so stupid. <laughs> you see a gecko cruising into your house, you just scoop it up, start rubbing eggshells on its belly. <laughs> yeah, that'll teach you. <laughs> the lizard's like, I'm not coming back here. And uh, okay, there's some other ones. So another one that apparently works is shallots. Green onions. Shallots. Yeah. Shallots spring onions. Are, uh, shallots and spring onions are different. Are shallots they? are like, yeah, shallots are like mini onions. Okay. Mini onions. Um, yeah. So shallots are an eco-friendly natural lizard repellent, it says here. Cut or grind some shallots, place them in locations where lizards have been sighted around the house. Like eggshells, the sulfur content and smell will repel the lizards. So that... Lizards are like like discount vampires, are they? Basically, you just swap and this out the one, garlic for shallots, and you can keep well, them out of your house. It actually says an alternative would be garlic, so oh. I guess it's anything in that family. So you could probably even get away with a leek. <laughs> it's grind up a leek, <laughs> shoving in all the, the little cavities in your wall, and you have <laughs> rotting leek in your walls. It's crazy. And this one, which is my favourite, which one, you got to pay attention to this one, right? Because there's a few steps, all right? And there's a few steps in understanding how it works. So lemongrass, so research, we're talking about research now, has proven lemongrass's effectiveness as a mosquito repellent. Okay. okay. So yep. that's, that's, that's proven. Yep. Lizards love to eat mosquitoes. So by reducing the mosquito population using lemongrass, lizards will have difficulty breeding as you've gotten rid of their food source. I mean that's that's a hell of an elaborate. Uh, I mean that's a cascade. You need to you need to basically facilitate a trophic cascade in your own house using exactly. lemongrass. Now I'm we're, we're poo pooing these ideas, but if lizards genuinely don't like the smell of garlic or other plants of that family, that's fine. I'm willing to I'm willing to believe that. I'm not. The egg one, in particular. The idea that the contact with eggshells burns them seems bizarre. But I can totally buy that lizards don't like a certain smell. Yeah, okay. Now, the, the um, mosquito-lemongrass connection, as far as I understand it, it's not that they don't like lemongrass. It's that it masks the cues they use to find you, right? That's why lavender... Like, I, I was under the impression that lavender and stuff had sort of... It had a masking effect and a sort of deterrent effect. But... That's 
I, I, you know, I don't know. I've not read anything on that, so that's pure speculation. If Lemongrass does the same sort of thing, great. I, I'll, I'll buy that. <laughs> Such a long way around, though, isn't it? So use lemongrass to trick the mosquitoes into not eating you. Luckily, yeah. they're entirely reliant on eating humans only. So they're now starving to death in droves. And what does that do? The lizards are. The lizards have gone locally extinct because you rub lemongrass on yourself. Crazy. At least lemongrass other- smells good. And like, yeah. like rotten eggs and sulfur. <laughs> yeah, but rather than mashing it up and slapping it all over your house, just use it in cooking and, you know... If you don't want lizards in your house, close the gaps and scoot them out when you see them. Um, they also say they also say if none of these work, just get yourself a lizard repellent spray. And you can buy lizard repellent sprays at most sundry shops and supermarkets, um, and simply spray that copiously into places where lizards appear to deter them from coming. And if you don't like lizard repellent spray, there's an electronic version. <laughs> don't know how that works. Oh, it's probably one of those ones that's allegedly giving out uh, like. Um like subtle electric impulses or whatever, either through the ground or or through your wiring to the dare things. Because you're meant to be able to get one for Is it is it mice and rodents? Where it it, it sort of prompts a, a like certain vibration or whatever in the wires so they're less likely to chew on them. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's cool. Again, no idea how effective these things are. <laughs> yeah. No I'm... idea. I'm not super I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm well I'm well suspicious of anything that's something repellent. Yeah, well we had a cat repellent thing because uh our neighbor's cat kept on digging holes in our um vegetable patch and just pooing in it, like, you know, the place yeah. where we literally grow food. And uh so I put this it looks like a camera trap, uh but it's it's got the infrared beam and when the beam is broken, it makes a really high-pitched sonic sound that only cats can hear, apparently, and probably all other innocent wildlife. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, most yeah. other wildlife, yeah. Well, luckily, the cats have killed all the other wildlife, so it's only bothering the cats now. But um, oh, it, I don't know how well it works. I mean, I haven't seen that cat in the vegetable patch since. I've seen it pooing all over the place elsewhere, though. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how well it works. Anyway, um, <laughs> let's move on to paper two, right? So yeah, from digging lizards, holes. Yeah, from lizards coming out of holes, cats digging holes in vegetable patches, we've got a paper all about holes. So this is Doody, Sonicson, James, McHenry and Clulo, 2021, Ecosystem Engineering by Deep Nesting Monitor Lizards, published in Ecology. So what's an ecosystem engineer, Ben? Uh, like a beaver. That's what I thought as classic, well. I always go beavers. Classic example, yeah. beaver. It's an animal that's out there doing the hard work, building an environment for itself, really. Um, but happens to also benefit a lot of other uh, species and sort of has a entire ecosystem constructed around something that it does. I mean, beavers, it's obviously dams and they're sort of ponds that they create. I have a feeling that beavers' uh, pond creation and stuff is a little bit more deliberate than just accidental, oh, it happens to have all these other things. I think it's all a little bit more deliberate and purposeful, but I'm not, I'm not yeah. super knowledgeable about beaver intentions um well it's not altruism on the part of the beavers go for tortoises there you go that's an example closer to home go for tortoises and by home i mean reptiles and amphibians um go for tortoises with their burrows a lot of other other, a lot of other species uh make use of them and so they are 
helping out and sort of engineering this ecosystem, this community of other species by supporting them. Yeah, same. So I think in in reptile kind, there's considered to be, as you've said, um, tortoises, also sea turtles, because they dig holes for their nests. Apparently those are, that's kind of minor ecosystem engineering as well. And crocodiles, which do the same thing. They build their big nests. And I guess you could even argue perhaps that king cobras were ecosystem engineers of a sort if other things are coexisting in their big piles of debris. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like ants and and uh, centipedes slash millipedes hang around those, those leaf litter piles a lot. But that might be just because they're trying to eat some eggs. Could or, be. Or, uh, you know, duff, duff eggs or, or the neonates as they're hatching out. Um mm. Which I'm not sure where that falls on this ecosystem engineer thing, whether producing high density food, you know, little buffets counts as eco- ecosystem engineering or ecosystem engineering needs to be uh, physical modifications to the landscape. I don't know. Mm. I don't know where the line is there. Feels like we need a sort of um, category down maybe where you've got like ecosystem engineers and they're just like ecosystem laborers like they're doing bits but it's not <laughs> it's not that major yeah it's that bought like uh, ecosystem services sort of things but for other oh animals. god yeah let's not talk about ecosystem services ah. um so yeah <laughs> the yellow spotted monitor we're talking about in this varanus panoptes this is a big old lizard actually not that big it's not as big as the one we were just talking about but it's relatively large 1.4 meters in length it likes riparian areas so catch it by the river floodplains lives in tropical australia uh we're also talking about varanus gouldii or the sand goanna uh, which is a slightly smaller um goanna monitor lizard that lives in the same area but yeah we're still in australia and uh it was 2012 and this research team were studying monitor lizards and they discovered that these yellow spotted monitor eggs were being buried in nests at depths of up to four meters down which is extremely deep and they reckon it's easily the deepest vertebrate nest on earth which is fascinating just as a as, as a general i mean I, I i don't think i've ever really thought about how deep in general vertebrates burrow um but the the fact that it is suggested that it's this this monolith as opposed to like some sort of special weird mole or something, or like a weird Sicilian, is kind of interesting. Yeah. But also really hard to study. So I've got a little bit of like, eh, maybe there is a weird Sicilian that like likes to dig nest chambers five meters down, but it's really hard to find because it's five meters under the ground. Yeah, totally could be true. Yeah. Don't know what they would be to eat down there. But other so these monitor lizards, they're basically digging these deep, deep holes and they're sort of um, helical, right? So it's like a big twisty... Uh, spring. Sp- it looks like a spring. Yeah, with a little burrow chamber at the very bottom. And they have some awesome figures in this which show the kind of what you end up with if you have lots of these burrows close to each other. They have like three dimensional plots of the earth underneath. And if you imagine, I mean, if you just imagine, right, someone had taken about 40 springs and just place them all upright next to each other that's what the underground looks like like in this area oh wow yeah a mattress a mattress of uh yeah monitor holes and what's also amazing is that when the babies hatch because the babies are being laid at the bottom of these holes the eggs when they come out come to hatch the babies don't follow the twisty windy nest chamber up they just burrow directly upwards (laughs) vertically into the soil and they have to come through between two and four meters of just 
soil to emerge, which must just be insane for the baby monitor lizards. Like, what what an undertaking is your very first act of See, life on Earth? That's uh, that's some precocial lizards right there. You could say that again. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. What was also interesting about these holes was that there was a lot of evidence of communal nesting and what they term traditional nesting, which is where monitors in a population are all coming back and laying their eggs in this place. And they found that some of the warrens contained over 100 clutches of eggs, um, which have obviously built up over many, many years, uh, which is fascinating. It, it's It's phenomenal I, I i their figures in particular d- illustrating the density of these burrows and the and the reuse and the whole sort of community angle and community nesting and and, and returning is just yeah it's phenomenal i mean what's what's the largest one they're, they're suggesting it's like 120 meters or something outrageous so this whoa where is the uh yeah, warren sizes were not precisely measured, but ranged from two to one hundred and twenty meters squared. Like that's, insane. that's, that's a monitor lizard city at that point, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, imagine really that the. I mean, obviously, I, I, I assume that the density of of burrows warrens changes, um, but even even so, like how perforated the ground must be over 120 meters yeah and you can see in the uh in their figure the area where all the holes are is kind of like red sand and then it looks like there's sort of a more scrubby area behind so maybe they all nest in like particular areas where there's good soil and then maybe you wouldn't get nests for you know i think it looks like there's like a collection yeah like they're deliberately concentrated to areas of good ground for burrow making yeah exactly Um, but you know inside these burrows it's a really nice situation for many animals you're talking about under the ground there's warm moist conditions a constant 30 degrees approximately around three percent moisture and nice loose soil which has been loosened by the activity of yellow spotted and gould's monitors which is apparently ideal for eggs of other species so you end up with a situation where loads of other animals are living in these burrows so there's snakes geckos skinks other monitors, smaller monitors like Varanus acanthurus, the spiny-tailed monitor, they go down there to nest. Uh, frogs, toads, scorpions, centipedes, beetles, ants, and they even once found a marsupial down there. Um, sometimes these animals are in great numbers. One warren contained 418 individual frogs. I don't know what the frogs had planned. Overall, though... Well, you don't want to find out with that many frogs, <laughs> do you? I mean, how do you fight off 418 frogs if they've That's close got a bad to the plan number. for you? Yeah, that's close to the number that could defeat a human. Easy, uh, easy. I reckon I reckon just the 18 would give you a run for your money. An extra 400 on top of that? No chance. Mate, you speak for yourself. I back myself against 250 frogs. Uh, not if they catch you when you're sleeping. <laughs> and, but the point is, you're finding a lot of different animals um, in... They only searched 16 warrens and they found 747 individuals of 28 species. So we're talking a seriously dense accumulation of species. And as I said, other animals are nesting in there. You've got the spiny-tailed monitors and spiny-tailed geckos as well, which both nest communally in the warrens which were dug by the monitor lizards. Um, so, yeah, basically they've just discovered this massive resource for other animals, which happens to be caused by the monitor lizards, um, which is, yeah, just a neat little thing and just a nice thing to give lizard kind credit for, really. It's... Yeah, I think it's something that people don't necessarily... Like I said, it's ecosystem services, and I know we don't like talking about that, but reptiles 
maybe because they're slightly less studied than mammals and things, but also I think they've got this this sort of baggage with them not being as useful, quote unquote. Um, but examples like this just completely, completely destroy that. Like you've you've got something that you've got an animal, you've got a reptile, which is generating these like mega metropolises of communal nesting across multiple different species. It's I'm I'm completely blown away by it. <laughs> like if you had just told me, okay, I mean when I when I found the paper, I was like, all right, yeah, okay, monotel lizards burrow down, they make a deep nest, and other things live in it. Great. So it's like gopher tortoises. It, the scale and density and intensity of this just I was not expecting at all like I'd literally just read the first like page with none of the none of the details of the sheer intensity and um, I don't know it, it leaves me in actual awe <laughs> yeah yeah, and uh, yeah, things like, you know, um, I guess in the short term, how did the invasion of cane toads affect this kind of structure and stuff would be cool to find out as well. So it does kind of link to the f- the previous paper. Um, oh, yeah, big time. Yeah. And if climate change is going to change the composition of the soil moisture or whatever, is that going to change the uh, monotelicity's ability to create these sort of nests? Stuff like that. It kind of... Uh, it kind of prompts more more digging, which is yeah, always how, a good thing. How vulnerable is this ecosystem engineering to changes occurring now and in the future? Yeah, yeah. How uh, how delicate are things? Yeah. All right. Well, there we go. There's a couple of papers on monitor lizards. Um, oh, one thing I forgot to mention: uh, the Varanid puzzle solving stuff. They do have videos of uh, the monitor lizard solving and also failing to solve the puzzles, which I'll throw in the show notes, which are kind of fun to see. Um, cool. And will serve as a better description of what the puzzle was than this twisting tube thing I tried to describe. Video yeah, is great. You can watch, you can watch monitor lizards make decisions, and it's very reminiscent of that Velociraptor opening the door in Jurassic Park. Uh, I would say it's far superior because uh, unlike those Velociraptors, actually gets a meal at the end of it. <laughs> I don't know. Did they not eat the T Rex? Uh, no, I think they they get pretty much trashed by the T Rex. Oh, you're they right. Have little, yeah. They have a little nibble, but. Yeah, I don't think right. they'd fill their fill their stomach. Yeah, yeah, you're quite right. All right, so let's move on to the species of the bye week. Okay, so this one is by Garcia Vasquez, Claus, Gutierrez Rodriguez, Cazares Hernandez, and uh angel de la torre lorenza so it's entitled a new species of abronia from the sierra de zongolica of veracruz mexico so it's an alligator lizard uh known because they look like alligators to some extent what uh <laughs> yeah believe it or not no nah, I, I i don't i mean that might be why they're given their name but come on uh, I think it's like the the big scales on the back just have like a vague re- like sort of they look a bit similar to the scutes on a mm. alligator. Mm. Yeah, I think it's pretty weak. I think it's. Pretty I mean, weak. you know, I mean, you know where I stand on naming animals after other animals anyway. So I agree. Yeah. Um, well, but it is what it is. It is what Regardless, it's an awesome lizard. Um, so, what does it look like? Well. It really depends. It's like most of Bronia, it's quite variable, I would say. Um, 
the background color can vary from sort of greeny to olive to brown. It looks like females more brown than males. Um, oh, and actually the um, neonates, I think, are quite brown as well. So maybe the neonates are blending in better to wood or something. I'm not sure why they're brown, but the juveniles are brown. And then on the back, the adults have this kind of sort of speckly scales. They're like sort of a lime green with speckling. And then on the back, it's a bit more gray and black. Um, but the very characteristic sort of large scales on the back, which gives them um, a tenuously alligatory appearance. <laughs> They got wonderfully pointy faces too. They got like really classic lizard look to them. And uh, they've called it Abronia zongolica, which is um, great because it's named after the place where it was found. Hmm. Plus, it's quite a good sounding name. It's got it sort of rolls off the tongue quite nicely. Yeah, Abronia zongolica. Yeah, zongolica. Uh, Yeah, the specific epithet zongolica. Zongolica is a feminine singular adjective and refers to the Sierra de Zongolica of Veracruz, which is the mountain range that supports the only confirmed population of the new species. Oh, cool. And uh, in the Nahuatl language, uh, the name Zongolica is derived from the words Zongolican or Zongolehukan, which roughly translates to where hair is braided. Which is kind of cool. I don't know whether that refers to the uh, topography in some way or whether it was just a historical thing that people would braid hair, I guess. But either way, it's a really beautiful name. Yeah, and they're, they're not monstrous lids. What are you talking about? 10 centimetres long-ish? Yeah, so, quite little. Which is pretty... T- 10 centimetres, that's very small actually, isn't it? it? Right. For alligator lizards, I feel like it's on the smaller side. Yeah. Um, and they are occurring in protected areas, which is good. Um, Not quite as uh, intensely green as uh, some other alligator lizards, I think that's worth mentioning. They're not as intensely lime green, sort of more muted yellowy yellowy greens. Yeah. Yeah. Just trying to see if there's anything with regards to their ecology. I don't think there is. I don't think we know anything about their ecology yet. But... Generally, these alligator lizards are sort of arboreal and they're found in trees that have lots of epiphytic plants. So it's fair to assume that these guys are probably doing a similar thing. Uh, yeah, they got a little bit about, uh, yeah, active during the day, potentially, that sort of stuff. Mm. But it's all sort of based on, yeah, it's, it's based on inferences from other alligator lizard species. So it's it's there's still a lot to learn, shall we put it that way? Yeah, yeah. Oh, and they eat insects delicious always tempting uh oh it's a viviparous species so it gives birth to live young and it gives birth to live young in the spring and the only one that's ever given birth in captivity uh gave birth to four neonates in early may so there you go Hmm. live bearing which is cool cool yeah all right sweet so uh species of the bi-week abronia zongolica excellent beautiful lizard yep and do we have any other business I, I certainly don't. And okay. if I do, I've forgotten it, and it's clearly not relevant. <laughs> I've just got one thing, and that is to say a big thanks to our newest Patreon, Amanda Snow. So thanks very much, yeah, Amanda. Big, big up. And uh, yeah, it, one thing I'd also like to say is if you're listening to this on an app, 
If you wouldn't mind taking the time to give us a little review, you can click the five stars thing on Spotify. Just make sure it's five stars. And uh, yeah, thank are you. People, you. Are people listening to this on Spotify? Is that something people do? I don't know, do actually. They, do they get ads? No, no, you wouldn't get ads. Are you sure? Unless you've got the... If you've got premium Spotify, you don't get ads. Right. But if people are getting ads during this... There are plenty of platforms that you should be able to listen to this without ads if your platform is giving you ads. They are not we don't ours. Get money they are nothing to do with ads. us. <laughs> yeah, we don't add. We no. don't add. But if you do want to contribute to the podcast, you can. Uh, Patreon.com slash Herp Highlights. And we are extremely grateful to all our patrons. Amazing bunch. Um, just, wow, great. And uh, yeah, I don't think there's anything else to add, really. We're on social media if you want to share anything with us. If you've seen a paper you think is interesting. If you've, you know, if there's something exciting that you want to draw our attention to or if you've got questions or anything like that you can email us as well herphighlights at gmail.com and uh yeah i think all that remains to be said is uh thank you for listening yeah thanks for listening